Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, through chapter 17, verse 8 story of the transfiguration. We think about symbolic moments like this, the ones that overflow with meaning, that fill your cup to overflowing, and just how difficult it is for us humans to coexist with them without trying to grasp onto them somehow. We pull apart the different ways that the word life is used in this passage, preserving life as a focus on avoiding pain, versus preserving life as finding the strength to do what is real and godly, even when it is hard, which it will be. And we wonder how we can live with a sense of urgency about the coming kingdom of God, even when the fulfillment seems to have been forestalled. Thanks for listening. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Amy. What's happening this week? Oh, it's good to see you. The pace of life is bizarre. Yeah. That's what I have to say about this week. <laughs> yeah. Life is a strange a strange mixture of things, oddly. You've taken on a whole bunch of extra responsibilities in your congregation, haven't you? Well, I'm I mean, the rabbis on maternity leave and you know, we are a very we're a small community with a small staff. So I Sort of have, I, I mean, yes, but a lot of it is sort of unofficial. It's just like. All hands on deck kind of thing. I mean, your hands yeah, are the ones and like that are. People who would have had like pastoral meetings with the rabbi, maybe now they will call and have a meeting with me, but it's not like I'm officially doing that. It's just, right. you know, and it, and I'm just like answering questions for things that everyone's like, I don't know, like someone has to decide. Fine, Amy's deciding. I'm deciding. I'm nice. Deciding. You're the decider. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's yeah. a wonderful thing. I will say that I was able to take a family leave with both my kids and stay home for a semester and take care of them. And mm-hmm. I'm grateful for that time. And so for whatever it's worth, like making that possible for someone else is a wonderful mitzvah that you are doing. Well, thank you. I actually think <laughs> I reflect on your paternity leave often, Bobby, strangely. No, but how how you said that the fact that you could take the full amount of time off that your partner had also taken off and like s- serially, like not at the same time. Yes. So you each had a period of time where you were the primary, you were the That's go-to, right. you were tracking everything. You knew you knew how to take care of this child because you were the, you know, like- to be the one like really in the trenches every day, I, my partner and I did not do that. We're not able to do that, and I don't think realized how important it could be to do that. And um, and ever since I've heard sort of your account of that, I've been like, <laughs> yes, that it. I mean, that is how it yeah. should be. All parents yeah. should have that time. Yeah, because it changes. It, it's not just for those months. Like it changes the whole how how parenting responsibilities will fall for a long time. I think. 
I think that's so. right. Yeah. So yeah. I definitely encourage people if, if they have, I mean, I feel very privileged to have had that ability to do that in my, in my context. But yeah, especially with our first kid and I had no idea how to be a parent. I mean, you, you don't. No and one does, right. Just suddenly, like, <laughs> when she was, I don't know, she was like two months old, maybe, and my wife went back to work, and it was like, okay, well, here you go. Here we are. <laughs> I know. And so We're I gonna figured it figure out. figure this and out. Yeah, we've been tight. My daughter and I have been tight ever since. And so, yeah, yeah it worked really well. I love it. Well, we're, um, we're reading a story today that we have read in – in other gospels also. I remember this story yes. that I referred to as the, the Tide commercial story. That's <laughs> yeah. so crass. God, Amy, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Better known as the Transfiguration. Yes. It is in Matthew. Our reading actually starts in chapter 16, which I guess would be right before the Transfiguration. It is. Right. Uh, 16, verse 24 through 17, verse 8. Yes. We have skipped a few chapters. We have. Since last time. Is there anything that you feel we need to know, either in broader context or immediate context, before we can dive into this reading? There's a couple things that are probably worth talking about. One of them is just the narrative lectionary skipped a whole chunk. I mean, we're moving really quick. You you like to talk about, which I mean is true, about how we go by the gospel, through the gospels, like almost verse by verse. Yeah, I mean, compared to... Comparatively to the Torah, which takes us like a week and a half. Yeah. But we're actually, we've been, since we got finished with the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter seven, like we were in chapter 13 and now we're in chapter 16, 17, we've been moving. The narrative lectionary itself, like in the abstract, actually had a text in between in Matthew 14 in which we got would get the stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water and talking to the disciples because of the way, I guess that's the way that Christmas and Easter line up this year. They just didn't have enough Sundays to do that one. And so mm. we skipped, we're skipping over it in this cycle of a narrative lectionary. So Jesus has been doing a lot of things, including feeding the 5,000 <laughs> and walking mm. on the water. And it was worth going back and reading those. For our purposes today, I think the thing that's most important is there's been a crucial, crucial episode just right before we pick up in 1624. And that is the quite famous story in which the disciples have been struggling all through Matthew's gospel to figure out who Jesus is. And finally, Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says in 1616, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When that happens, so finally they named it, and then immediately Jesus starts to talk about how, what that means is he's going to suffer and die at the hands of the authorities in Jerusalem. And Peter objects and says, no, that's not going to happen to you. I mean, literally, that's what he says. God forbid, Lord, this won't happen to you. And Jesus says, you get behind me, Satan, because you're talking about things that could make me stumble. You're not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. And so we've got this interesting moment. I mean, and that literally was verse 23, the verse before we pick up right here. And so in this moment where we're starting, they figured out who Jesus is. Jesus has said, that means I'm going to suffer. Peter says, no, 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 Messiah can't suffer. That can't happen to you. And so we've got this tension about we figured out who Jesus is, but we don't understand who Jesus is. And what's the role of suffering and messiahship? Mm-hmm. There's, it's a complicated moment in the gospel 
where we pick up in 1624. Yeah, I'd say so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, who was a German theologian in the period of World War II and the Holocaust, uh, who ultimately was uh, executed by uh, Hitler's regime. One of the things that he said about this text was, from the very beginning, the church has taken offense at the suffering of Christ, which is such an interesting idea. Like Peter representing the church, as soon as he figured out Jesus was the Messiah, the first thing he did was to say, you can't suffer. And for Bonhoeffer, like that's the long story of the church is trying to figure out some other thing that following Jesus means other than suffering. And you might probably you'd want to nuance that a little bit as you go, but I think Bonhoeffer was really on to something, this issue of suffering, which which we've been talking about this whole uh, season in Matthew anyway, mm-hmm. uh, is very much front and center right here. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, I, it's a beautiful text right before the one that we're reading that I, I won't comment on because then I think we could just do a whole podcast on that, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a very moving conversation, I think, between Jesus and Peter. I want you just to say a little bit. Can you just say a little bit? <laughs> I mean, I just, I just, you know, I I empathize certainly with Peter wanting this like beloved, honored person mm. and leader not to suffer and yes. want to express that love by saying, yes. "I we can protect you from suffering. We can make yes. it our whole goal to protect you from suffering, and we yes. can prevent it." And almost a way in which, you know, Jesus as a human, that is tempting. Like that is the temptation. That's the temptation of the devil, right? We can prevent suffering. And and Jesus is so insistent immediately that we cannot talk about that precisely because it is tempting. Yes. And it's like we we have to move, you know, that's not the path we're on. And I don't know. I I, I don't know what it says for— for my life or our lives, but it's, uh, I think it's a very, a very moving conversation. I mean, those were exactly the temptations that we read a couple of weeks ago in chapter four, maybe not exactly, but, you know, throw yourself down from the temple and the angels will catch you and prevent you from suffering. Or here's the whole world. I can give it to you without your having to suffer. If you just worship me, Satan, same temptation, but now it's coming from a disciple instead of from the tempter. And so it's so interesting the way in that, in the original case, it was the devil trying to trip Jesus up intentionally because he was an oppositional force. Yes. Here it's the beloved, one of Jesus's followers in exactly the, like, I care about you and therefore I don't want you to suffer. Yeah. But the, ultimately the effect is the same, which results yes. in Jesus calling him, Satan, calling him the tempter. It's so interesting to think about, like, what are your motivations? And you can actually play the role of the devil, even when your intentions are entirely when positive. When it's coming from love, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it feels so much more pointed to me coming from his beloved disciple than from the devil. Because yes. the devil, like, clearly you're the answer is <laughs> yeah. no. The answer yeah. is no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not coming from love. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My favorite part of that podcast uh, on the temptations was when you said something like the temptation to rule over the world and all you got to do is bow down to Satan was like a little on the nose. You know, it's not really that tempting when you're like the 
all you've got to do is worship the evil one. And you're like, that was not a good temptation, which is true. <laughs> Here in the mouth of a beloved one, it's much yes. more tempting. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that's where we're starting-ish. That's where we've been. Um, and then we are picking up in chapter 16, verse 24, and I am reading from the NRSV. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, I feel like my first question is sort of like, you know, Captain Obvious. <laughs> but, but I want to ask, I don't know, I want to ask it anyway. This first this first thing that Jesus says to be, you know, if you want to become his follower, deny yourself, take up your cross, mm-hmm. and follow me. Mm-hmm. Follow me is fairly obvious, I guess, what that means. But I want to talk more about deny yourself and take up your cross. Yeah. And I feel like it's Captain Obvious in some ways because, like, deny your—I I don't know. Maybe, it, maybe it's not obvious. What— how do you understand, like, what is he saying by deny yourself? Because we've talked throughout the gospel about things that you will have to deny yourself and also things that you must not deny about yourself, about the fullness of yourself. Yeah. So will you try to parse that out a little bit, what you think Jesus is referring to here? I think that's a really important question. And I mean, I'm interested in what you're thinking about it. I relate it to the part that just came before, which was about avoiding danger, about Mm. protecting oneself, protecting one's community, protecting one's life, protecting your own self, rather than, you know, in ways that sort of trade off this following of the kingdom of heaven. To me, that's the key, is there is a kingdom of heaven and we have been baptized into that kingdom and so now we're following that path and there is this other possibility to which one is always tempted. And we've just seen Jesus be tempted there and he's had to say, no, no, no. You're a stumbling block. Get behind me. I've got to go do this other thing. That's where I, and then the very next verse is this one. And so I see Jesus asking us to do the very thing that he just did, which is mm. to say, there's always going to be these voices whether they be the tempter or whether they be people who love us dearly, who are trying to get us to trade off this life of the kingdom of heaven to which we've been invited for some other kind of safety and security and luxury. And I mean, luxury, not even luxury, just safety and security and trusting in the provisions of the empire rather than in the daily provision of God. And you've got to let all of that go. And that's going to put you in danger. I don't always know what to do with that piece. There are are plenty of people, like, I live a very safe life. And so for me to be reminded that I need to be willing to risk is important for me to hear. There are people 
who's certainly hearing that they need to risk more or yeah, be yeah, in danger, yeah. like that's a problem. But for me, it's, it's important to hear. Yeah. The take up your cross, I feel like that tends to get a little bit sanitized. Like that's a really provocative image. You know, the cross crucifixion in the Roman world was excruciating, humiliating, public execution that was reserved for the lowest of the low. People who had were not Roman citizens, people who were accused of sedition against the empire. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, you were crucified, you were hung publicly on a cross. It often took people 24 or 48 hours to die. People were walking by looking at you. You were naked. I mean, it's just, it's brutal. And so to say, take that up. I think a lot of us tend to think of like, we wear little silver or gold crosses around our neck and it's like really pretty and beautiful and it's a sign of resurrection. Yeah, and it's like protective. Exactly. Which is sort of like the opposite. In, yes. In some, I mean, in some ways, if we're talking about yeah. the, if we're talking about safety. Yeah. 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 So the cross is going to become that after the resurrection, but what Jesus is talking about here is crucifixion. And so like, yeah. it's really quite scandalous. I, I, I try to translate that into contemporary life. And it's something like, you know, strap on your electric chair and follow me or, or something like that. I don't quite know what it, what the parallel mm-hmm. is. That's but it really is something that one would not want to do for right. sure. Right. Yeah. What do you think about that idea of denying oneself and taking up the cross? I think what, I think what struck me is just, there's the denial of sort of safety and security that can be given to you by the empire, you know, safety of your body. Yeah. And security against imagined future <laughs> harm to your body. But we have also talked about, you know, what I've come to refer to as like the salt thing, the saltiness, don't give up yes. your saltiness. And so so I just want to be sort of clear, and, and I think this is what you're saying too, but correct me if not, that this is not about deny your essential self, like hide yourself, right. hide your authentic saltiness. Right. You know, it, it's it's that, that that precisely may put you in harm's way, yes. and you have to be willing to do that. Yes. The common English Bible translation is must say no to themselves. Yeah. Which to me clarifies mm. that a little yeah. bit. So the the saltiness is exactly living your life for the community, not for yourself. And so to say no to yourself means to live the life for the kingdom, which is exactly the saltiness that you're supposed to maintain. So I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. Say no to selfishness in order to live this beloved community, which makes you distinctive. Yeah. And and part of what the community needs is for you to show up fully yes. and authentically. Yes. Even if it's risky for you. Even if it's risky for you to do that. Yes. Yeah. So then when the text goes on to say this very famous and poetic line, those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. That's it. It's poetic and beautiful and also confusing to use the word life yes. <laughs> in these two different ways simultaneously. Do you feel like like what like your comments from just a moment ago basically get at what this is saying or do you want to pull anything else out of this particular turn of phrase? 
Does this build on that? I mean, I think it is building on that. And so there is a sense here that there is an authentic life to which you have been invited. And then there is your own Mm -hmm. life, like your own self-referential life. And if you try to protect your own self-referential life, you will lose your capacity to participate with the community in this authentic life in the kingdom of heaven to which you have been invited. If you're willing to give up your own self-referential life, then you can participate in that true life, which is possible, but you've got to get past the barrier of protecting yourself in order Mm -hmm. to belong to the community, which is the expression of the kingdom of heaven. That's how I put it together. Does does that answer the question? Yeah. I I mean, I think it does. And I think I think that's how it lands with me too. And I love that the way you talked about it. Like this is, I think, another one of those places in Matthew where you could look at the time as now, we're talking about right now, and also we're talking about later. (laughs) Yes. And so it's, it's not only that being willing to deny yourself or say no to yourself now means that in the afterlife or at some future time, you'll be rewarded in like the, you know, world to come or however we want to talk about it. It's also that here and now it's like, what's the, what's the point (laughs) of keeping yourself safe and secure if you're not really living the, you know, in the way that God intends here and now on this earth, you're just preserving something. Right. Now, there absolutely is this future sense, and you get it very clearly with the Son of Man coming with the angels to judge. I mean, this this is the harvester metaphor that we were working on last mm-hmm. time with the mm-hmm. parable of the wheat and the weeds. There is that future moment, but I mean, you said it exactly right. Matthew is not thinking of the present world and the future world as being discontinuous. It is yeah. you start living the afterlife now, or you start living in the way that the kingdom of heaven is constructed now. And then that at the judgment, that sort of transitions or becomes fulfilled in a different kind of way, but they're not distinct from each other. So the way you live now, you are already participating. And the way Matthew brings that in, or Jesus brings that in here is, uh, uh, then he will repay each one for what that person has done, which I mean, sits a little awkwardly with a Presbyterian, <laughs> you know, because we believe that you're, one is saved by God's grace, regardless of what one has done. But here it's saying, by your deeds, you will be repaid. And so I think that's a, another way of saying, like, if you start living in the kingdom now, you will get, you will live in the kingdom when it is fulfilled. But if you follow the ways of the world now, you're going to not be invited into the kingdom when, when it's fulfilled. And it very much is about like, what are you going to do today? And it goes back to the Sermon on the Mount and all of the, not a letter is going to disappear from the law and all, and all of those things. Yeah. So I, I should tell our, our listeners that I, for better or for worse, you may really wish this had not happened. I saw the musical Hades Town over the weekend yeah. and I'm completely obsessed with it and have already texted Bobby many times about um, Hades Town between then and now. But if you have seen it, and so and so, maybe this is resonant for you. But it, there are just so many, so many really clear connections in my mind. Like the story of someone who needs to fill their belly, and you know, 
this people in the underworld that work to build the wall. Why do you build the wall? Because it keeps us free. Free from what? Free from poverty. What is it we have that the people on the other side of the wall want? It's work. And we have work building the wall and the work never ends. Like it's this, like mm. you get yourself into this. We've created an alternate alternate reality that just, uh, that that never ends and and has no frame of reference to like the, the real world up above. And I don't know. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. I, won't I love it. I really, I haven't seen it. And so it's very hard to know how to, how to process. I know, you, I know, I, I know. I really, I like know. when you talk about it, I think, oh yes, like that, that needs to be on my list. Yeah. Things yeah. don't come to Little Rock so much. It's not easy to see the musicals in Little Rock. Every once in a while, something will come through. Maybe, maybe once it's not in the big theaters, like a Like I saw the Lion King a couple years ago. Okay. 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 Good. (laughs) We'll take the Lion King. It's good. good. It's good. That's good. This last little section here, the Son of Man is to come. Okay. No, this last verse. There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Do you understand that, like, primarily as a, what I always call the like put on your shoes line. Like it's coming now, like yeah. now, right now. Yeah. Is that how, how like, is that how you understand it? Like there's, I don't know, a, a time urgency here. I think so. I mean, that's a troubling line for some reasons as, as I'm sure you can anticipate because I mean, here we are 2000 years later and like, has that actually uh, happened? I read it the way that you're suggesting, which, I mean, it's very similar to the axis at the root of the tree that we read from John the Baptist earlier. It's, we've been talking about the arrival of the day of the Lord, the transition of the kingdoms for all the way through the Hebrew scriptures. And now there's an urgency to me. That's exactly what it put on your shoes. I I like that, that, you know, Mm. this, it's not that the kingdom of heaven is something you can put off until tomorrow. It's something that needs to be done today. And one of the challenges, I think, of being a Christian is living with that sense of urgency. Yeah. Even though the a kingdom seems to have been, at least the fulfillment of the kingdom, seems to have been forestalled for, for quite some time now. So how do you keep waking up every morning feeling urgent about it? I think that's yeah. a real challenge. Yeah. Just as you were talking, I don't think it had really occurred to me in this way before, but it made me think of, you know, when you're in those moments of life that are just, just really freaking hard, just really hard. Yeah. And you can't imagine how you're going to get through the whole of it. And so, and so you have to imagine that like, you're just going to, you have to take it in pieces. You have to say just this day, I'm just going to do this day. And I wonder if it's possible to read that urgency as as almost like a you only have to do this, just do it one more day. And of course, it's hard then when you look back on it and be like, "Well, that wasn't true." Like, yes, <laughs> exactly. Okay, fine. Yes, and I don't know. I could, if Jesus is really asking them to do something really, really hard. I don't know. I wonder if that offers some relief or fortitude or like you just have to get through a little more. Yeah. I think that's, I think that is a good way of thinking about it. (laughs) We were talking earlier about parental leave and being a parent and whatever. And one of the things that is true of me is I 
figure out how long that I'm responsible for my kids. And I can make it that long. Yeah. But if it turns out that I have to do it long, like even like 20 minutes longer than I thought, I just like, oh my gosh, how can I ever make this work? And so like, I've had to tell my wife, you know, if you, if you think you might be home at three, but you're pretty sure you'll be home at four, just tell me four. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, I'm shooting for four. And if you get home at three, Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah. But if I'm mm-hmm. shooting for three and you don't get home till four, then I'm going to be a total You're going to have a meltdown. You're going to find <laughs> me on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. So not to so compare my spouse coming home. this would be a good strategy home. for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, so that you got it. You can just make it through. Like there's only a little more to make it through. Like you can do it. Like I need that. I need that. If you were like, you've got a 2,000 years you're, from now, you're still going to be trying to figure this one out. Yeah. Church. Then you'd think, oh. I mean, there are some interpreters who read this as being fulfilled actually in the very next chapter in the Mount of Transfiguration. And so some of the disciples actually see Jesus in in his fullness in the next chapter. I have not pursued those arguments overly far. And so I I can't quite evaluate them fairly. I tend to read them as like the first issue is like, wait, that didn't happen. (laughs) You know, like here we are 2000 years later. Some people, they did die and we didn't see the son of man coming in his kingdom. So what did Matthew mean? And then you Mm -hmm. say like, oh, well, but we could read it this way. I tend to think that's, it's sort of like explaining away something that's a problem instead of just letting the problem be the problem. But anyway, but some people do read it that way. That's, That's interesting and perplexing. I mean, it is true that Matthew's gospel was probably written, you know, it's usually dated to like 85 or 90 CE. And so the disciples were sort of dying at that point. Like Jesus had been dead for 50 years by the time that Matthew was written down. And so to say, like Matthew knew full well by the time he wrote his gospel that Jesus didn't come back, you know, a week a week later. And so, so maybe he did mean something along those lines, or maybe he is encouraging a constant sense of urgency like yeah. we were talking about before. Yeah. I like thinking about it as urgency because I think the other way that my mind goes automatically is sort of, and there's a way in which none of this matters because this game is about to end. Yes. And so I mm. think that can be helpful in terms of thinking none of the ways of the world matter. Mm-hmm. But if it turns into nothing in this life matters, I think that, for me, sort of defeats the purpose of what what I think this is actually trying to say, which is that it does matter how you it live your life. It does matter, yeah. This is not at all nihilistic. Yeah, it is the, the opposite of that. The time is short, and therefore everything you do matters. Yeah. Hello, fellow Bible worms. My name is Amy Marie Epp. I'm a pastor at Seattle Mennonite Church in Seattle, Washington. I support Bible Worm at the early worm level. a month, and I consider that professional budget dollars very well spent. What I especially love about being a patron at this level is having access to those podcast episodes a week early, since I'm often working that far ahead on sermons or on worship prep. Also, by the way, I love the sticker, which I put on my water bottle immediately. Amy and Bobby's insight and wisdom have become an invaluable resource for me. I look forward every week to hearing them chew through that biblical text together with curiosity and with it feels like I'm a part of the conversation. That's why I wanted to support them in making Bible Worm possible. It still feels like a gift each week to have that Patreon episode land in my inbox. I hope all of you who are listening will also consider becoming patrons. And now, back to this week's episode. 
Should we go on? Should we go up the mountain? Let's go up the mountain. Okay. Um, as you we were saying earlier, there's no real natural place to split this in half, but I kind of want to anyway. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna split it at a surprise yeah, let's do pace. It. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm picking up in chapter 17, verse one. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. All right, I'm going to pause there just for a, a moment here. Why did he bring so few people up the mountain? That's a good question, Amy. I don't know that I ever really thought about that. There is this kind of insider-outsider motif in Matthew's gospel that we've seen, where it's the crowds. Yeah. They kind of get it. Then there's the disciples who really get it. Like, they get to go in the house and ask Jesus how to explain his parables. Now there's, like, an even smaller group, Peter, James, and John. Like, he's got his little subgroup who get to see. This incredible thing. Like, this... I mean, you would. This is not something you would forget. <laughs> no, and not something necessarily that people would believe if you told them about it. Although, yeah, they're not really supposed to tell them about it. Yeah, maybe there's some sense that like you have you have to be ready for it. Like you have to be. I mean, it just seems like it's the kind of thing that could be so transformative. I'm like, Peter already seems to have figured out who he is. Why does Peter need this now? Right. But but maybe I don't know. Maybe. You know, there are these these Jewish texts that you're not supposed to read when you're young because, <laughs> because they're too easy to misinterpret, or so the like rabbis Ezekiel, said. Like Ezekiel, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes? Yeah, yeah, I don't remember which ones. Yeah. <laughs> those are the ones yeah. that I would put on the Do Some Not Some of the weirder list. ones, yes. Ooh. Those would fall into the categories of the weirder ones. Sex, death, and mystical chariot gods. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's leave those out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Do you think there's something about this, what he, what, what they're seeing here, this transfiguration that would, I don't know, could be misconstrued or that could go wrong if the wrong people saw it? Or am I barking up the wrong tree? I mean, as we read on, you know, we'll see that it almost kind of does go wrong. Mm-hmm. Even just with this little group of folks who are the closest ones including Peter, who just has made a declaration about who Jesus is. And so I, so, I mean, maybe that's exactly right. And then and then in verse 9, which is just past where we're reading today, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until the human one is raised from the dead. And so there, I think there is a sense in which you can't really understand what's happening right here until mm-hmm. the resurrection has happened. Mm-hmm. And so just these couple of folks can handle the, handle this insight right now. And then other people will be able to understand it later. But here are the ones. I don't know why these three, but that does seem to be the does seem to be what's happening. Yeah, this is just how it happened. I mean, this this vision they see is so like unbelievable. Can you just imagine? Can you imagine? Okay, this is a really probably very heretical thing to imagine. So maybe don't imagine this in particular. But like this. <laughs> This beloved religious leader of yours, who you have understood correctly to be the son of the living God, the Messiah, and then to get this, this like sort of visual thing happen, this, 
he, you know, he he's dazzling like the sun. And then this appearance of Moses and Elijah. Yeah. Do you like what what do you think this scene might add to the understanding that they already had or confuse about the understanding that they already had in in important ways? It's much more ambiguous, you know? Can you say more about that? It's more ambiguous than it's more ambiguous than than a conversation that you're able to have that's like, yes, I am the Messiah and the Son of Man. And now it's like you are glowing like the sun. And now there's <laughs> yeah. a vision of some prophets of previous generations. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Amy, when you're somehow talking to you about this in particular, is making me think of that distinction that you often make about ritual mm-hmm. and explanation. Mm-hmm. This is not a ritual, but it is a symbolic Mm -hmm. experience yeah that makes sense in a different way than if you just tried to explain it to somebody yeah and so thinking about like well what are the symbols here and how might they be interpreted seems like that could sort of start to unlock instead of trying to pin it to pin down exactly like I could have just told you this (laughs) instead of going up the mountain like Uh, I need you to see this because it's too much to say the meaning overflows, yeah. and so I need to show you something, and then you can kind of work out the details. I think that might be a way yeah. of thinking about it. Yeah. That part where Jesus' face is shining reminds me of a couple of things. One of them is Moses mm-hmm. in, where is that text? Like Exodus 34, somewhere in there? So yeah, Moses- somewhere around there where he goes up, and, and when he comes back down the mountain, he has to wear a veil because— his face shines so brightly that people can't look at him. Yeah, his face is, yeah. So he just had this encounter with God and his face is so shiny that people can't look at him. Yeah. And so Jesus is shining like that, which is sort of connecting Jesus to Moses' experience and connecting it to like this being in the presence of God and this like genuine revelation and all of those kinds of things. The other place that we've seen a shiny face is in the parable of the weeds, actually, the wheat and the weeds, in that explanation at the very end, Jesus says, once the human one comes, the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Mm. And so this here we have like a pretaste of that. Jesus says, shine you like the righteous one in the in the kingdom. Which may be a way of thinking about like some of you will see the righteous, see the son of man in his fullness before you die. Um, it might be a way of mm, touching see. back to that. I see, Maybe I see. So. I don't think I'd hang too much on that, but I think that's a possible way of reading it. Yeah. I love what you were saying about this is sort of like a symbolic thing that has happened that maybe goes alongside that conversation that has happened, but yeah. but it overflows. Yeah, yeah. It, it overflows with with different meanings. This is also one of the places where, I mean, one of the things you've been saying from, I mean, with some frequency, this season, which I think is right, is that you cannot understand what is happening in the New Testament unless you're familiar with the Hebrew scripture. And I think this is one of those places, like the symbols here don't make any sense unless you can somehow connect them to other things to create this sort of field of meaning. So I'm just curious when you read this with your knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, what kinds of connections do you see to other passages? Well, you gave us some of them already, but I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is 
is just why why Moses and Elijah in particular, yeah. which I think we've talked, you know, we've talked about this text from the perspective of different gospels over the yeah. years. And, and so I think we've talked about this every year, but it merits repeating. You know, Moses, maybe it sort of goes without saying, but he is, He's really the the person who who uh, led this mixed multitude of people out of Egypt and and in some important ways like formed them into a coherent people. Like was their leader as they became Israel. Yeah, and is the intermediary between them and God in this in the time in the time of that formation. And then Elijah. You know, in some ways, I think Elijah is like a funny guy to have there, but also mm-hmm. not because he, you know, he's a prophet later who is probably most famed for how he didn't die, <laughs> right? Exactly. but instead left the earth. And because his death is not narrated, there is a tradition in the Jewish community that he will come back and inaugurate the beginning of the Messianic era or or the coming of the Messiah. I think we saw sort of a reference to him when we were reading the text about John the Baptist and Elijah's strange fashion sensibility. And so to be here on the mountain with Moses and Elijah seems like these are folks who mark the beginning of really profoundly new things in the community. Yes. And I think that's exactly right. And so Jesus is is a third of those marking yeah. an important transition, something new in the community. I think Moses representing Torah, Elijah mm, representing yes, prophets. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which we've seen already in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's sort of a reinforcement of that idea that Jesus has not come to sort of triumph over or get rid of or negate Moses mm-hmm. and Elijah, but mm-hmm. they're up there on the mountain together and they're chatting. And so Jesus is fundamentally connected to what came before him in that kind of a way. The other thing that I've been thinking about, I don't know if this goes anywhere at all, but the, you know, the other commonality, of course, is that all three of these have mountaintop experiences. And Moses' mountaintop experience is where he receives the Torah. Mm-hmm. Elijah's mountaintop experience, you and I did an episode on that. I think it was last season. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. uh, wherever that text is, First Kings 19 or somewhere around in there. And do you remember, I, I had never read this that text this way, but what has happened is that Elijah's just had that famous interpret or famous encounter with the prophets of Baal where God sends fire down and demonstrates that God is the true God and Baal is not. And then uh, Elijah assassinates all the prophets of Baal in the Wadi Kidron and then Uh, and then has to flee for his life. And you and I read that as God saying to Elijah, like up on the mountain, like, okay, Elijah, like you got a little carried away there. (laughs) So now (laughs) you need to like take a step back and put put your mantle on Elisha. Yeah. So trying to make sense of Elijah's mountaintop experience here. And I, I mean, this is way out of the text. I mean, it's it's trying to play with the symbol of the mountain, but yeah. I have wondered if the temptation that Elijah faced was to use his power, his violence, in order to rid the world of what he viewed as a countervailing force of the prophets of Baal. And he got corrected about that on the mountaintop. 
And so Jesus encountering Elijah on yet another mountaintop may be reinforcing that idea that neither should Jesus use his power mm-hmm. to, f- to get rid of the countervailing forces, but rather we've got this, you know, the importance of the suffering, death, and resurrection. That's how that's going to get adjusted or changed or, um, or something. I don't, I don't know how far I want to push that, but I, I just can't stop thinking about that possibility. You know, Bobby, it's making me think about my initial question, like, why is why do you only bring these three guys at the mountain? And sort of like that, I don't know, <laughs> the, the, the power of having an experience on a mountain like that and how it, it can go sideways. Like, <laughs> once you're sort of aware, like really sort of aware in your bones of that kind of power and having that sort of close encounter with it unless you are really solidly grounded in something other than the forces of the everyday world yes then you'll try to use the forces of the everyday world to you know in some mixing up with that power and it and it it can go badly yeah go badly and peter has just tried to do that in the previous chapter Uh yes saying Mm -hmm. you don't have to do this we'll protect you and so Maybe Peter is there so he can have a sense that there is like this, there is something bigger that is happening here. And so yeah. you've got to repress those instincts. I, okay. I don't know if we're ready to go on yet, but I just, it makes me laugh every time. I'm sure laughing is not the appropriate response. Did you hear what Peter's response to this whole situation? <laughs> Should I, can I just go on and finish this? We can go back and talk about the first part again if you want to. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so I'm going to pick up in verse 4. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Mm. I, I just picture like, <laughs> like Peter and the other disciples are sort of watching this unreal vision unfold. Yeah before them that they really have no way to interact with. And they're not really being asked to interact. (laughs) They're not. No, no. But it's like, he's got to do something. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I think in previous years, I've described this as Peter basically offering to make a cheese plate. Like, (laughs) like, what, what can I do to help? But you have a, you have a slightly more profound reading of what's going on. I don't know. I don't know that I do. Oh, well, (laughs) sure you do. (laughs) Sure you do. I can tell no, what you. What I was thinking stuff. about was like, can you just imagine? Like, I mean, this is like being starstruck to the nth degree. Like, oh my god! I lived in LA for a brief time, and at some time that. randomly, I was in Larchmont at Blockbuster Video, like in the late '90s, and I saw. I don't even know if this will make this reference will make sense to you, but I saw Luke Perry, who was Dylan in mm. the original Beverly Hills. Oh, yes. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Dylan. Did you offer to build him a shelter? <laughs> I just totally shut down. I freaked out. And I was like, ah. 
And like, I mean, so Moses and Elijah are like so much more impressive than Dylan from Beverly Hills 90210. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and just the fact that Peter mustered anything at all, I feel like is super impressive. Like I just like blushed and hid behind a, behind a rack of videos till he left or something. So yeah, I mean, but it is a funny offering. Like, hey, can I can I build you build you a tent uh, so you can <laughs> so we can all just stay up here? So the thing that Peter says he wants to build in in Greek is skena, and which is related to the Hebrew shachan in some way or another, mm-hmm. mishkan, shekina, mm-hmm. some somewhere in there. I'm just curious what we would. I mean, it's hard to think from the Greek, like through the Greek to the Hebrew. Yeah, no. And what would it mean? Um, but is it like, like, I just sort of throw this out as like, I want to build a tent or something. And, mm-hmm. and maybe it is that. But is there, do you hear more resonance with, with something else there? I mean, certainly if we relate it to Mishkan or Shechina, I mean, Mishkan is, is, the, is how we refer to like the, the, the tent in which God dwelled in the desert with the Israelites. And so yeah. it's, and then Shekhinah in, in later Jewish history refers to the, the sort of the, it's so hard to, <laughs> it's hard to put words around this, but the, the God's presence on, on earth, like God's in indwelling presence. Yeah. Yeah. Here with us earthlings. So thinking about it that way, it's not just like, can I like make you one of those little bus stops that has the cover (laughs) (laughs) over it, which is to be honest, like sort of what I was picturing Yeah. or not even necessarily a a sukkah, which is also a sort of little hut like thing. But if we connect it to the Mishkan or to Shekhinah, it, it really is a sense of like a protective indwelling place where, where God is especially present. Yeah. I really appreciate that, Amy. Because it, so it's not simply about shelter, but it's also about being in the presence of the holy. And I think that captures something really nice here that Peter is after. He's recognizing the holiness of the moment. He's wanting to create a space where it can unfold or where it can linger for yeah. some period of time. You kind of you kind of get you kind of get where he's coming from. I think. He doesn't get scolded here in quite the same way that he gets scolded in some other versions of the transfiguration. That instead the voice comes from heaven or right after Peter says. Is while he's still speaking. It's like no one even heard what he said, <laughs> which is why I think it's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> God's just like, I see where Peter, you're going. You're with not this. part of this. You're not, you don't have a line in this scene. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have not picked up on that, but you're exactly right. Like Peter's. Hide behind no, the no one cares about your offering. Shelf. Yeah, things yeah. shall continue I you were to unfold. Nine or two and oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, <laughs> yeah. God bless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you you spoke before about ways that stories in the Hebrew Bible are evoked, and so I don't know if you want to talk about that here or just speak more generally. But it, the I, the image of a bright cloud. Mm. overshadowing them. Those are just things that don't, like bright cloud overshadow. When I picture clouds, those are, I don't know, I picture a cloud with a shadow that is sort of protecting you or blocking you from the 
bright. But here, the, the, the cloud itself is bright. I don't know. what. How do you think about that, whether it's by drawing back to Hebrew Bible texts or just sitting with the image sort of poetically? Yeah, I mean, the cloud definitely takes me to the Hebrew Bible text and back to that Moses story mm-hmm. that we've been talking about. There's a cloud that descends on Sinai for six days. I think it's maybe in Exodus 24 before God starts talking to Moses in that text. And then the cloud also, as you well know, is represents God in the tabernacle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and represents God's presence. So that, you know, the, the presence of the cloud is a presence of God and the presence of a holy moment. I had not really thought about the fact that it's a shiny cloud, which does not seem to be the case in the in the Hebrew scripture image. I think I think where I want to connect it is back to what I was talking about earlier about the shining of the righteous at the coming mm. of the Son of Man, which is just to say that there is an image here in Matthew's gospel that the <laughs> the presence of God is really shiny. Like when you're in a holy moment, like things are just kind of uh, shiny and bright. And so this cloud represents this kind of breaking of, or I don't, breaking is not what I mean, the merging of the worlds, the future reality of God's presence has come fully into connection with the earthly realm at this one moment, this one place, mm-hmm. and then they're going to separate again. That's how I, that's kind of how I'm putting it together, but I'm curious yeah, what no, you I, see when you look at it. I like that a lot. And um, and certainly it brings me back to the cloud as sort of a sign of God's presence in a place that comes up a bunch of times in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. I think I'm also just sitting with it sort of like poetically almost. Like if you think of, you know, when the clouds show up in Exodus, it's like a cloud in the desert. So it's kind of good. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it is sheltering you from something. Yeah. It's changing the light and it's sheltering you from a thing that you could use a break from. Yeah. So a shiny cloud in that context would not exactly be what you're hoping for. Yeah, it's for. not. Here it's, I almost picture like a cloud that's sheltering you from darkness or oh, yeah. like sheltering you from from something else because the mm. situation is is different. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so even if it seemed as though maybe uh, – you know, that the disciples don't have a speaking role here and they're just supposed to be witnessing this whole thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) God then speaks directly to them. Yes. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, is it the third, the third wall, the fourth wall speaks to the fourth wall? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And says, this is my son, the beloved with him. I am well pleased. Listen to him. I'm kind of taken by the fact that it says they're overcome by fear. But now that I read that, is there something about the, that particular line that God says? Is there anything that you want to, I guess I was sort of like not surprised by it because I think we've encountered it before, but. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things that have stood out to me about that. The CEB translation, by the way, reads fear as filled with awe, which we talk mm, about from time to time. I was going to ask, I was going to ask, yes. Yeah. Is it fear? Is that that fear awe? Mm-hmm. Fear and trembling, that sort of that yeah. sort of fear. Yeah. Which is the appropriate response when you have been yes. spoken to by a heavenly voice. Yes. The other thing that I, that you notice about that is this is my son whom I dearly loved. I am very pleased with him, as the CEB has it, is exactly what 
the heavenly voice said to Jesus at his baptism back in chapter three. And so you've got that connection of that moment where the heavens opened up and now you've got this moment where the heavens merge for a moment with the earthly kingdom and that repetition, this is my son. So now we know who Jesus is. I, I wonder if there's something different thinking about this awe there's something different about Peter sort of grappling after you are the Messiah mm-hmm. in the last chapter and God, God's voice saying, that is my son. And so not only like fear and trembling at the presence of God, but now also fear and trembling in the presence of Jesus because now we understand. Now we understand fully without any qualifications. Yeah, We've got the references yeah. to know that, that what we thought was true. Yeah, it's like, he understood that intellectually in the last yeah. chapter. He was able to say it and use the words, but I can imagine that it feels very different to yeah. now have this experience and have God's own voice in your ear yes. saying it. Yeah. It's, it's different. Absolutely. The other thing, of course, that is added here that the voice says is listen to him, which we did yeah. not get at the baptism. Before, it was just a declaration of who Jesus is. Here, it's a repetition of that and then a command to listen. I wonder if the fear and trembling is connected at all to that. Because Jesus has been saying some stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, then what do you make of the fact that after this, Jesus says, do not be afraid? Yeah. Like, surely that can't mean do not feel awe. That wouldn't make sense. Hmm. What do you think Jesus is, I don't know, is is going for? So if you read, that's a great question. And I mean, I wonder if we're playing with the two senses of mm. fear and awe yeah. here. Oh, I like that. Because the li- when the listen to him, if you if you if the listen to him points backwards, then the last thing Jesus really said to them was. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. And that's frightening. Mm -hmm. Jesus has been saying before that about, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, like, here's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven, y'all. And so, and and, you know, I've been talking for weeks now about how hard all of this is. And so maybe if you hear God say, you like, listen to that, really listen to that, that that would be fear inspiring. Yeah. What I love about this is if it points forward, listen to him, the very first thing Jesus says is, get up, don't be afraid. So if the listen to him, and then that's the what you really need to hear, get up, mm. don't be afraid. So there is an action involved. You've got to keep moving, but no need to no need to be fearful about it. I don't know. I've got, a, I've got like a whole mixture of things going on in my head related yeah. to, to all of that. No, I like that. I like that a lot. The first thing Jesus says is get up and don't be afraid. Like don't don't be paralyzed by fear. Don't fall into yeah. the fear side of that fear awe. Yeah. Balance. Oh, that was helpful to me, Amy. So being in awe of Jesus is not about crumpling to the ground. Yeah. Being in awe of Jesus is about living your life in the ways that you've been told to live it, even though it's going to have a high cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add on this 
section before we begin to draw to a close? I've got this thought that's rattling around in my head. It's another one of those thoughts that I don't know where it rattles to exactly. But when we read the baptism passage where this was said, the very next thing that happened was the Holy Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. (laughs) Here we hear it again. And the very next thing that happens is the disciples have to go down the mountain on their way to the capital city where Jesus is going to be crucified and die. And so that, like, this is my son, the beloved, leads to these sort of moments of intense struggle and temptation immediately each time. First time it was, I mean, both times it's Jesus, but now the disciples have been kind of pulled in there as well. Yeah. And so the don't be afraid is like, we're getting ready to go through some stuff, y'all. The last time, (laughs) the last time God said this to me, I was in the wilderness 40 days. This time I've just told you about suffering, crucifixion and resurrection. And so this is sort of the, the belovedness and preparation for the, for the struggle. Mm. Yeah. No, and I remember um, the last time we read it, obviously it was maybe not obviously that those two stories were divided between two different weeks. And so we ended the, the first one really talking about reveling in God's delight mm-hmm. with his son and just how, how beautiful it was to sit in this like light-filled moment. And then the next sentence is like, <laughs> then God said to, you know, and I was like, what happened? Yeah. What kind of love is that? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as you hold all of these different things together, this time around, this year in this gospel, what are you thinking about? The way this passage is resonating with me today is as a Christian who is a member of a mainline Protestant denomination that has experienced a long period of prosperity and privilege in the U.S. and that seems to be coming to an end or maybe has ended, which creates a lot of fearfulness among people like me. And this passage in a sense, is very encouraging to me, inspiring to me in that context, because, you know, there are all kinds of ways of losing one's life. One of the ways of losing one's life is to lose your institutional life and to cease to exist in the way that you have come to think you should exist. And this passage to me is resonating as don't cling to your life. That is, Don't cling to the reality that you thought was so important to you about having a particular status, particular importance, a particular cultural significance. You can't hang on to that, but live the gospel. Listen to Jesus in all the ways that we've been talking about for the last six or eight weeks or whatever it's been now. The things that I keep saying, you got to live it. You know, you can't just say it. When you do that, there's going to be a cost to it. And it is entirely possible that maybe not you in our context, but that your institution, your community is going to lose the life to which it has been accustomed. And that is absolutely faithful to the gospel. Live out these radical ideas, live life in community, 
live life for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, and it might cost you. You might shrink. Your denomination might die. But that's not ours to worry about. Ours, our thing to worry about is following Jesus, following mm-hmm. this way. Taking up our cross, I think in that context, means holding on to the possibility that this way of life might be the end of us and then trusting that there is that there is more on the other side. So this line, don't be afraid, get up, to me is like you gotta, you can't be paralyzed in fear about what's coming next. You gotta yeah. get up and do the next thing. And tomorrow's worry will take, will be, will worry for itself, right? That yeah. passage that we read a couple of weeks ago, just stop, stop being so fearful, get up and embrace the possibility that, this radical life might actually lead to institutional demise. And that might not be the the worst thing that's, that's ever happened. Mm, that is so hard. <laughs> yeah. Humans don't like that, Bobby. I will also acknowledge that I say this as someone whose uh, livelihood does not come from the institutional church, which makes it much easier to say things like that. Which is why it's really important that um, we talk all the time about people who are a little bit on the outside of the, what a, you know, power center sounds a little malicious in a way that I absolutely yeah. don't mean it in this case, but it's important that there are people whose livelihood does not depend on it, who are t- yeah. really invested in the well-being of the yeah. church writ large, whose voices are, are in the mix there. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Where's this passage landing with you this week? It's landing in a little bit of like a fuzzy, dreamy space. which is, you know, you were talking before about how what the disciples experience on the mountain is both sort of confirming of, I guess, what they understood to be happening, but also so overflowing with meaning and just like truer than true and bigger than big. And you, you, you know, like one, I don't think one could really articulate what does it mean that this happened and what, what should we do? Like, what, what does this mean from, you know, you can't just like write in, write a mission statement or an essay very, you can't write a strategic plan based on this experience. And it's so tempting when one has it a big, I mean, I've never been up on the mountain and seen someone transfigured, but like, you know, any kind of moment of real sense of connection or clarity in one's relationship to God, it's hard to hold on to for precisely that reason. Like I'm a human who works in the, in the realm of language and logic and I want to yes. know what to do with things and what it means and, or I want to build the shelter and make it last forever. Yes. Like we're going to, we're going to stay in this forever. But to be able to take it as a, as like a really filling your cup to overflowing for whatever the next thing is, mm-hmm. which <laughs> I, I have a friend who says, like, you know, when I say that my my signs, my divine signs are not clear enough, she's like, oh, you don't want the clear ones because that means something <laughs> real bad's going to happen. You, know, like, you, don't, you don't want them to be that clear. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I, th- I feel very aware reading this text that it's, I always want these moments of clarity to have like a, and now what do I do? Like, what yeah. do I do with it? What's the next thing yeah. that I do? And and sometimes it there's not that sort of immediate thing. You just have to hold on to it. Like, a different reality has opened up before you. Yeah. And what you have to do is 
remember that it's there is is remember yes. it and it's and it's going to be easy to forget because it doesn't make any sense in the daily world that you live in but you just have to you have to like hold on to that crazy visceral memory that is crazy and true yeah no, i really love that amy that you know i'm also as somebody who's always trying to interpret things and i i you have helped me resonate with that image of Peter trying to interpret what's happening to him and <laughs> God just talking straight over him. <laughs> I love that idea. And so maybe sometimes you just got to keep your mouth shut, Williamson, and let the experience be what it is. I love that. Bobby, next time we are reading Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 35. Yes, and in between there, we've got a special episode for Ash Wednesday, which will be the first part of Matthew chapter 18. That'll come out on a Wednesday, and then the end of chapter 18 our reg- will be our regular episode. will come out on a Sunday. All righty. Sounds good. See you next time. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our newest supporters, Allison Forrest, Aaron Wathen, and Ingo Williams. Join us again in just a few days for our special Ash Wednesday episode, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. Until then, keep on digging.